Welcome to the Denver United Sermon of the Week. Here's a message from Pastor Rob Brendel. Good morning, you wonderful rebuilders. Thanks for coming to church today. Happy Sunday. It is Group Sunday, one of the best of the year around here. Look forward to a lot of us connecting, reconnecting. Keep meeting folks that are new to Denver and new to our family. There is room in the family for you guys. And uh, we are so glad to be at this time of rebuilding together. There's sort of a homogenizing effect, isn't there, that going through a time of great crisis has. The new time, newcomers and the old timers are all sort of sifted, and we're just here rebuilding Jesus' church, all who are willing in this city uh, and in this season. Are you as full up to here as I am with uh, synopses and perspectives on these trying times that we've been through, these uncertain or unprecedented times. You know what I'm talking about? We're, as a postmodern society, so hyper self-aware that we've already been analyzing and regurgitating our analyses about the times we've lived through before we've fully experienced what we're describing. And so, um, at the risk of piling on, it does occur to me that of the many consequences of the hardships of 2020, perhaps chief among them is that we were isolated. We were alone by necessity much of the time, then by habit after that, and the consequences have been dramatic. The National Institute of Mental Health recently published initial findings of a study from the, or concerning the year 2020, and they concluded 31% of the population experienced symptoms of anxiety or depression. 13% reported having started or increased substance use. 26% reported stress-related symptoms, and listen to this, 11% of the population reported having serious thoughts of suicide. One in ten. That, they added, is more than double pre-pandemic rates. What we're seeing in early returns and exhaustive first rounds of analysis is what I think we as Jesus followers have known in our heads all along. And it's, it's why we need each other. Why we need each other. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We've looked over the last several weeks through the book of Nehemiah as a blueprint for us as rebuilders, like people living in a coastal town after a hurricane coming out, after battening down the hatches and waiting for the storm to pass, to assess the damage, grieve the losses, and then ultimately to come together and begin the good work of rebuilding. What we've seen in the lesson of Nehemiah, Pastor Neil put in wonderful perspective last week, and that is that the context of the rebuilding was entirely the unity to which God has enduringly called his people. Remember that at the beginning, Nehemiah rallied the remnant, those who had either remained or recently moved back to Jerusalem, but they were living in squalor and isolation and living in rubble. 
uh, and great poverty, and then the few who were in the first waves of the return from captivity joined them, and he said, hey, let's all do this work of rebuilding out of a practical necessity that we're vulnerable and we're living in a pile of ruins. And so initially there was goodwill. They all went about the work, but by verse 10 of chapter 4, the people of Judah, as would seem inevitable, began to complain. The workers, they said, are getting tired. There is so much rubble to be moved. We will never be able to build this wall by ourselves. That's where they came in short order. And they were weary, and they were tired, and they were afraid, and they were complaining. It's true. But they were not wrong. What they identified quick enough in their own practical experience is what we learn living life on a fallen and broken planet. And that is that together is not just an ideal, it's a practical necessity. Together makes a good ideal. Don't get me wrong. Jesus prayed that we would be one in our unity. We would see the gospel lived out. Unity, clearly, as Pastor Neil pointed out last week, doesn't just sort of happen by osmosis when a group of diverse people engage in a common purpose. Unity is both a means and an end. Hard fought, slowly achieved, and all too quickly lost. Together is a functional necessity for the work of rebuilding to continue past about chapter 4 and verse 10. When the people start feeling, I can't do this alone. So this morning, we're going to launch from there and take a little diversion into the New Testament and see this idea in the life of the Lord Jesus himself, who being found in very nature as God considered equality with God as not something to be grasped, but emptied himself and took the form of a servant. He never stopped being God, but Jesus identified as the Son of Man like 10 times as often as he identified as the Son of God, though indeed he was both because he was setting us an example in addition to purchasing our pardon, and he was showing us a Savior who not only was capable of achieving our redemption, but worthy of our trust in the process. And so we'll look at Jesus in his own darkest hour. Matthew 26 is where we'll camp. Verse 36 reads, Jesus went with his disciples to the olive grove called Gethsemane and said, sit here with me while I go over there to pray. And then he took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John. Those were his closest squad. And he became anguished and distressed. He brought them with him and he told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Then he went on a little further, bowed down with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me, yet I want your will to be done and not mine. Then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep and he said to Peter, couldn't you watch with me even one hour? But keep watch and pray so you will not be given to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, My father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, then your will be done. When he returned to them again, he found them asleep. They couldn't keep their eyes open. And so he went to pray a third time saying the same things. And he came to him and said, Go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. Ah, but look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed 
into the, sand, into the hands of sinners, look, my betrayer is here. See, this passage is at once as clear and misunderstood as any in all the New Testament. This may be the single most misinterpreted passage in all the Gospels. I think what we get out of it isn't wrong necessarily. It's just not the main point. And when I say what we get out of it, what I'm referring to is how often this story, this passage has been used over the decades as a teaching of theology for devotion, right? And practical guidance for a quiet time. And with Jesus, many a pastor has stood in front of its congregation and said with a wagging finger, could you not tarry for one hour and have a quiet time and pray? And those are important and good things. But it seems that Jesus' primary intention here was not giving us a theological treatise about our prayer lives. He didn't invite them to come along with him, pause his soul's grief and distress in order to make a teaching point about how to have a devotional life and to scold them for not doing so. What Jesus seemed to be going through was his soul's darkest hour. And it seemed that he was living, experiencing, and modeling for us the very principle that we see in the book of Nehemiah, and that is that together with your squad, it's not primarily an ideal, a teaching point, but a pragmatic daily necessity. It seems that Jesus, if you just look at the text and take it for what it says, wasn't at least primarily thinking about how long or where to go and pray, but rather about the fact that his soul was so grieved and he was so fraught with anxiety that he was sweating and blood vessels, tiny capillaries were bursting and dripping blood. He was absolutely undone. And going through his darkest hour... Jesus modeled leaning on his friends. He brought his group and he said, you guys, let's hang here. I'm going to go just a little way over. But then his closest friends, Peter, James, and John, he brought with them. He wanted to let them in. He needed to let them in, but he chose just to be vulnerable with those with whom perhaps he had the most trust. He told him in verse 38, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Jesus showed us in inviting his friends to stand vigil with him in his soul's dark night that we need each other first and foremost to hold our pain. We need each other to hold our pain. Now, we may or may not need each other to fix our pain, and indeed, one another may not be able to do that. Have you had the friend whose trite, nutshell solution of comfort and look on the bright side seems aimed at fixing it and calling it good so that they don't have to linger maybe in that emotional difficulty with us? Well-intentioned, but not ultra-helpful. What Jesus showed us is our own soul's need for some other people to enter our grief and hold our pain with us. Not fix it, just simply keep watch with us. A few weeks ago, I traveled back to Georgia to officiate my father's celebration of life service. 
And that's a, that's a hard thing to do, I discovered. My soul and its anguish was a little sneaky because his decline had been steady over the last couple of years. So I think I thought naively that maybe I had pre-grieved a good bit of it not knowing exactly how that's supposed to go down. And I guess I did. It didn't hit me as shocking. We were expecting his home going to heaven. But grief came up in lots of unexpected ways. In the midst of it, I had a friend, a dear friend, show up at my dad's memorial service. And he didn't show up to say anything or do anything. Indeed, he pulled me aside quickly and said, I don't want you to pay attention to me. I don't need anything from you. I just wanted to be here with you and for you because I could imagine that this was going to be a really difficult time. And I could have not possibly had any idea how meaningful that would be to me and how much I needed someone just to keep watch with me. We need each other to hold our pain. Verse 39, Jesus prays, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. I don't want to do this, is what he's saying. God, I know the plan. I was there with you. We are in very nature one. The Apostle Paul is going to get it right when he says, This was God's mysterious plan from the beginning, that when times reached their fulfillment, Redemption would occur this way. I get it. I'm on board for the program. It's just that I've been a human for 33 years. I don't want to do this. Is there any other way? And he wrestles through that. The temptation must have been great to switch the ball cap from son of man to son of God and pull an end around, call an audible at the line of scrimmage like Omaha, Omaha, and then just accomplish salvation a much more turnkey way. But he wrestled through it and then he came to, yet nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And he submitted and he modeled for us so much of what is involved in our relationship to God. And then he went back to his friends again. And he found him sleeping and he woke him up. And I found myself thinking, why would he be going back and forth to them? I think there is something, and read between the lines with me. Maybe this is a stretch, maybe it's not. But I think there is something that in us that Jesus showed that needs our crew, needs some people not only to hold our pain, but to cheer our wins, to say, you did it. You passed the test. Like we were right here. You were there. We heard you wrestling and we wanted to go in there and be like, you got this, Jesus. But we knew you had to go there alone. But like Aragorn, we're waiting when you came out of the cave to say, you did it. Way to go, man. You defeated that temptation. Every one of us, is wired for that. In the time a year ago where the church was closed and then it was opened by fits and spurts like so much of society and the rules were changing every week and we were trying to be good citizens and follow Jesus and feeling the effects of the separation. Do you remember we started a house-to-house initiative? Acts 20 verse 20 when the Apostle Paul says, you all know as we were starting the churches how we would meet together 
in person and also house to house. And we're like, hey, we can meet together in person when and as we're allowed by law. And then when we're not, we could either sue the government and make a big stink and take the attention onto us and make the world think that Christians are more ridiculous than they already do. Or we can just follow the rules, whether we like them or not, and think it's insane or whatever we think about government and politics. And we can just meet house to house. So what do you say? We just meet house to house for a while. Sounded great. And then Mari was like, hey, we should probably do it too. And so we did it too, because we suddenly found we didn't have that much to do. And so we gathered other 40-somethings with teenagers that live in the Wash Park area, and we got together and did what we asked you to do, which is to worship, watch the sermon, um, and then talk about it. Exceedingly awkward when you're watching yourself preach the sermon, because no one's going to be like, like, so what'd you think of the sermon? Ah, it sucked. No one's going to say that when I'm sitting there. And so everyone's like, it was good. Like, he's sitting right there. (laughs) Super awkward. But we all endured through it. They, me, and we became really tight in the process. But you know what? There was a, a time, like a month in, where they said, hey, this is awesome. Now, I, it wasn't that awesome. It was adequate, barely. We were scrambling back on our skis, trying to figure out how to keep this thing from closing down and us from just disbanding. But they're like, hey, that was genius. That thing that Mari saw in Acts 2020 and the fact that it was that verse Acts 2020 and that you didn't like play on the 2020 thing, like 2020 vision, like you were the only pastor that ever thought of that, that you didn't do that campy thing. Awesome. And like us all getting together and having built it on small groups so we stayed afloat until we were able to meet, meet together again. Way to go, guys. And it was like Jesus came and put his arm around Mari's and my shoulders and said, you guys got this. We all need some people not only to hold our pain, but to cheer our winds. Verse 40, Jesus returned to the disciples and, of course, found them asleep. He said to Peter, bro, couldn't you keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. What he was tempted to do bail at the 11th hour, pull the escape handle, he knew they were tempted to do because he just went through it. And so he's lovingly challenging them. And so Jesus turns the relational reciprocity the other way and shows us another reason we need each other. We need each other to fuel our growth, to spur one another on. Proverbs teaches that as iron sharpens iron, one friend sharpens another. We need one another to speak the truth. If Jesus isn't going to say it in love, like, bro, you got to be able, some things are more important than sleep. You got to be able to hang with me because I know the temptation you're going to face. You got to, like Paul's going to write in 25 or 30 years, beat your flesh, make it your slave. Come on, you got this. We all need some people to come along and fuel our growth and say what we need to hear. Do you, do you know that like the, CEO with the weird habit. Do you know what I mean? Like the person who has made it to the top of their ladder or very close and they've made it there without anybody telling them during like open enrollment season of their life that you have really bad breath or you cut people off every time they talk. But by the time he or she is there, like everybody around them works for them or wants to be them or wants something from them. So nobody, it's kind of the the, the ship has sailed of being able to speak into their lives. Do you know what I'm talking about, that person? And you're like, he's sitting next to me. 
Okay, that person doesn't count. I want you to go home happy with each other. But you know that other person? <laughs> Do you know that person? You know what I'm talking about? All right, just making sure. So there is that progression toward the concrete drying in every one of our hearts. We all need some people who are willing to take the risk to speak the truth in love. Relationships are the soil in which the seeds of faith grow, always have been, was the case with Jesus and his disciples. I mean, if they just had Jesus, it would be tempting to be like, I'm good. But he modeled how much they needed each other. And when he stepped out, they exploded and took off. Relationships are the soil in which seeds of faith grow. We're not made to grow individually on little islands of us and our busyness and our customized religious preference. We're made to grow in the inexact experience of sharing life together. And let me tell you this, I've said it to you many times, probably once a year over the last 11 years if you've been around, and you'll probably be treated to me saying it about once a year for as long as I'm alive. And that is that if your enemies are the first ones to tell you the truth about yourself, you don't have any real friends. We need each other, and we need each other now more than ever. So he returned to them again in verse 43, found them sleeping again, for they couldn't keep their eyes open. And so he came to the disciples and said, go ahead, sleep, have your rest. It seems that as hungry as they were for the things of God and eager as they were a half a chapter ago to go with Jesus even to the grave, they were also exhausted. And at some point he's like, you know what? It's all right. You're human. I understand you're sleepy. Go ahead and have your rest. Something huge that he models there. Because especially when I'm distressed, if I say something once and then I go away and I come back and I'm like, Hello, I think I turn into my evil twin and I grab him by the lapels and I'm like, what is wrong with you? See this? It's blood. I'm sweating freaking blood. Can't you stay up with me? I mean, I would go berserk. And then Jesus is like, you know what? It's all right, man. You're tired. I get it. You need your sleep. And there's something in the balance there that is important for us to grasp. Yes, we need each other to speak the truth, to fuel our growth, but we also need each other to accept our brokenness, to accept us where we are and how we are, and that we, like they, are a work in progress. Jesus made a living out of meeting people, not where he thought they ought to be, but where they actually were, right? Dignifying them at that place and slowly, unhurriedly earning trust eventually to bring them along to where he knew God thought they should be going all along. And yet, man, how tempting it is to skip that part. How much we need grace, the world doesn't give it to us either. The world's happy to point out what's broken, missing, or skewed. But man, to give room for that, to allow wiggle room for us to be humans in progress... That is in short supply indeed. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his classic work, Life Together, wrote this. In the presence of a psychiatrist, I can only be a sick man. In the presence of a Christian brother, I can dare to be a sinner. The psychiatrist must first search my heart 
and yet he never plumbs its ultimate depth. The Christian brother knows when I come to him, here is a sinner like myself, a godless man who wants to confess and yearns for God's grace and forgiveness. We need one another to make room for what has yet to become and accept us where we are. Otherwise, we exhaust ourselves trying to put on a show for one another week after week and year after year that we got it all together when we know full well how backward that is. And so eventually, we just kind of check out because like either the facade cracked or I got exhausted trying to keep it up in the first place. Flashback, maybe a week or two earlier in this story and in Matthew 20, Jesus was going to Jerusalem. So he and his disciples turned the corner and it says in Luke, he became resolute. So he took the 12 disciples aside privately and told them what was going to happen to him. He had spoken in parables and riddles, kind of come at it sideways. They were still piecing the story together, but now he gets painfully clear. Listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of the priests and the teachers of the law, and they'll sentence him to die. Then they'll hand him over to the Romans to be mocked, flogged with a whip, and crucified. Shockingly vivid depiction of what was about to go down. He says, but on the third day, on the third day, I'll be raised to life again. The disciples seem to have missed it altogether because they promptly enter into an argument about which of them is the greatest. And Jesus is like, oh, well, I'll try again in a few miles. But Jesus showed us something here. I think in his soul's cry in Gethsemane and his invitation to his brothers, he showed us what's true of all of us, that we need some people who not only grieve where we're at, but believe in our dreams. See, Jesus had a dream. He had a vision of the future. It says in Hebrews, we get a little glimpse into his psyche at the point that at this point in Hebrews chapter 12, it was for the joy set before him and not the theological correctness of it or just because he cared about everybody that much, but because of the end game that he saw, the vision he had of the future. He endured the cross, scorned its shame and sat down at the right hand of God, right? He had a vision of the joy that was ahead. He told his disciples, look, I'm going to go, I'm going to suffer, and it's going to be horrific, but I'm not going to stay dead. It's going to be glorious, and the purpose of God is going to prevail. And I think he showed us, held a mirror up to us, and showed us of ourselves. We all need some people who look at us, accepting us where we are, but also believing in our dreams. Also seeing that diamond that's in there, calling it out and signing on for who we could become. I know I do. What does God see in you? What are you becoming? Even if it's rough around the edges or in its formative state, 
Jesus said, I'm making all things new. If you've walked with him for any time at all, you know he's making you new. What's he making you into? We need some people who accept us for what he's redeeming us from. We also need people who hold that imbalance with believing in what we're being redeemed into. What's the new you? What vision has God put in your heart? What dreams is he dreaming through you? We need some people who hear that and go, you know what? I see you. When Mari and I told our community in Colorado Springs in 2008 that we were going to leave a stable job doing good things in a thriving community and go hang up a shingle and start a church in a post-Christian city where sensible Christians were heading for the hills during an economic recession. And we got a lot of, are you sure? With the, bro, you're crazy look in the eye. And we had two friends, two couples that said, we see what God's put in you and we believe in it and we're with you heart and soul who quit their day jobs and moved up here with us. We all need those people. That was the difference. You could say it was Jesus. Yes, it was Jesus expressed through those brothers and sisters. Holding this church up. At times, holding Mari and me up. Believing in us and in what God was doing in us. I'm a fan of F. Scott Fitzgerald and in his great American novel, the great Gatsby, he opens with Nick narrating in the first person and describing Gatsby. And he said, he had this way of seeing you just as much as you wanted to be seen. He believed in you like you wanted to believe in yourself. So let me ask you, who believes in you like you want to believe in yourself? We all need someone like that. Wouldn't you say? So, looking at these reasons why, it's easy to conclude, well, that's what Jesus does for us. Holds our pain, cheers our wins, fuels our growth, accepts our brokenness, believes in our dreams. Heck, he authors them. And especially in times like these uncertain times, where everyone always says it ponderously, in these unprecedented. I could not hear that for the rest of my life, and it would be too soon. But in times like these, we get a little more insulated, I think. And the temptation is great to say, you know what? Give me Jesus, and I'm good. Jesus, take one of the songs like the one we sang in worship this morning and twist it to mean Jesus is all I need. I'm good. Me and him, I'm good. Jesus addressed that the way he so often does by a sort of sideways, unexpected gesture. Matthew 28, fast forward now about a week, or maybe, maybe it was three or four weeks. We don't know quite exactly how long he was there after he rose from the dead, but maybe a month. And this is Jesus' last words as recorded by the Gospel of Matthew, the Great Commission, familiar words. He's gathered his disciples, and he gives them the Go Change the World speech, all authority, Heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, I'm going to give it to you. Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them. Teach them. And they're like, yeah, raw. And he's like, and surely I will be with you 
always to the very end of the age. And they're like, ah, oh, with Jesus by my side, I could do anything. I mean, we saw him heal. We saw him raise people from the dead. We saw him come out of the grave. Cha, sign me up. And then he's like, I will never leave you as he starts floating up. He's like, peace. And they're like. And they all look at Peter and they're like, do something. He's like, what, what do you mean? You just said you're never going to leave us and you are literally leaving us in this moment. This is the last Jesus thing. This is not funny. Come back down here. And if he's floating up slowly, like in up, I see him like grabbing Jesus's foot and Peter's like, wait, get back down here. I don't know what to do without you. And he's like, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. He's like, what does that mean? I, we cannot do this without you. And Jesus is like, I got to go now. And he's like, you just said you'll never leave us. You literally just said that. And now you're leaving. Has anyone ever read that and thought of the irony? So Jesus. And so if I'm Peter, I'm like, wait, get back down here. No, you can't go yet. And so, you know, whatever's pulling Jesus up is more, is heavier than Peter pulling him down. And so I imagine Peter like doing the up thing and starting to float up. And they're like, Peter, you may want to let go now. He is not, gravity is not working. It's going to be a long fall. And so he's like, dang it. So he lets go. The disciples catch him and they're like, not funny. What do we do now? Here's the thing. Saying, Jesus is all I need, I'm good, meaning I don't need you all. I'll just do me and Jesus, Colorado style, you know, like on a mountain with a blunt, however it is, you get down. That's how we do it in Colorado, right? We're so individualistic. Jesus, I'm good with. I'm, I can take or leave the community part. I've been hurt by church, bro. Okay, right. So have we all. All right. Okay, so gee, I saw I had to... I got lost on Colorado in the blunt, and that, I said that out loud. Delete that, huh? All right. Uh, don't do that, by the way. All right. Anyway, so Jesus takes off and leaves them and exposes the flaw in our thinking that oh, I just need Jesus. Yeah, kind of like the 80s song that says, all I need is the air that I breathe. Well, and lungs, right? I mean, implicit in needing air is lungs to metastasize, to absorb the oxygen. All I need is Jesus. Jesus expresses his manifest presence through one another. One another is how we experience Jesus. And you're like, but I've got the Holy Spirit. Yes, the Holy Spirit works by connecting with the Holy Spirit in every other believer, and the body of Christ is formed. The Apostle Paul used that metaphor in Ephesians 4. We'll speak the truth in love. We'll grow in every way, more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body. Now, we've heard body of Christ so long as Christians that the oddity of the metaphor is lost on us. But it is an odd metaphor to refer to a community as somebody's corporeal existence, their body. But his point was, one another is how we experience him. You are the hands, the feet, the arms of Jesus outstretched. We experience Jesus' manifest presence through one another. And we need each other badly. Now more than ever before. And so as we rebuild, let's rebuild the infrastructure of our lives 
before we fill our schedules up to overfull again like they used to be, let's schedule what matters most and prioritize growing together. This is who we're made to be. And so this morning, it's Group Sunday. Just outside the door here are a bunch of us. They're not like black belts in church or Christianity. They're people like you and me that have jobs and are trying to get girls to go on dates with them or raise kids or graduate from, from their graduate program or whatever it is that you've got going on, they do too. They simply heard God's voice and said yes. And we've got a whole bunch of groups in the church. All the ones out there are starting brand new. And they took that risk. It's vulnerable to hold up a shingle, to stand in behind a table and say, hey, come try my group. They're doing it to make it easy for you and me to connect. Those are some heroes and some servants and chief out there, right? And they're people just like us that would could give you 10 reasons why they're not ready yet. But they just said, Jesus, make us ready along the way. And so what I'd like for us to do is absolutely mob them. Stick around for like 20 minutes after church and take the risk. Forfeit your anonymity. Prioritize the soil of relationship in which you're made to grow in faith. And so we're going to pray and say amen and then head out there. Four things I want to ask you to do. One, sign up. Don't overthink it. Maybe the perfect group for you or your neighborhood or whatever isn't there yet. You see people getting up. That's the leaders going to, to get their tables ready. Or else I really offended them by pointing out that they find Jesus while smoking a blunt. Sorry, Ron. I know that's you. We forget. No, I'm just kidding. No, they're, they're group leaders, I promise. Um, so sign up. Don't overthink it. Don't wait for the perfect group. The perfect community never comes. And if you find it, here's the great irony. You enter it and spoil it because you bring you. I bring me. Like I am the enemy of the perfect community, but the perfect community doesn't exist. It's just people trying to find life in Jesus together. So find one or two, sign up. Then number two, call back. They're gonna call you or email you. Call them back. Don't ghost them. It's a horrible feeling to get people signing up for your group and then they don't call you back. Like, what's wrong with me? Like, let's, let's avoid that. Let's honor one another. So call back and then show up. The second most discouraging thing would be a bunch of people say, yeah, I'll be there. And then they don't come. You know, you pop the popcorn, you vacuum the carpet, you fluff the pillows in the living room. And then it's like, it's like you and the one awkward person. And you're like, dang it. It's going to be a long hour and a half because the others didn't show up. So show up. And then give it a little time. Stick it out. The first group is always the most rough around the edges. And then from there, it just gets smoother and smoother. So here's what we're going to do. Sign up. Call back. Show up. Give it time. All right, say it with me. First, sign up. Call back. Show up. Give it time. You got it? All right, stand up with me. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you that you've made us one though we are so many and so different and all over the planet in terms of where we are in our hearts and our growth and our, where we live and everything else. Lord, would you make us one? Would you teach us how to grow together, Lord, the way that you modeled with your own friends? And would you bless our friends as they 
take this step of vulnerability to lead? Would you fill up these groups and rebuild the fabric of this community in the coming weeks? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have an amazing week. Thanks for coming to church today. Go find a group. We hope you've been encouraged this week. For more information or to submit a prayer request, go to denverunited.com.